Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and with me is a man who does his best juggling when he's about to break something. Just Dale. Ain't that the damn truth? Yeah. <laughs> like when you drop something, you like try to catch it 15 times when you go <laughs> running across the roof. Yeah, I do that. <laughs> yeah, all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That is always your best. It's most satisfying. Yeah, especially when you catch it. Yeah. But you when you break it, no, not yeah, so much. You don't look like an idiot or when you do that and then you end up kicking it <laughs> 15 feet across the room. Do you really kick it 15 feet across the room? Yeah, I measure. Oh, you do? <laughs> <laughs> Only thing, I can juggle though, really. Can you really? Yeah, softballs. That's I, the easiest way. Um, I can't juggle. I've always been fascinated people who can juggle a bowling ball and a chainsaw and a bowling pin or something. Yeah, it's a little above my pay grade. Yeah, especially the chainsaw running. Any, yeah, anything. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's a whole different yeah, whole different pay grade. <laughs> yeah, that's professional dumbasses right there. <laughs> What's going on, dude? Same old, same old, man. Same old, same old. Recording episode. Yeah, having a good day. Having I'm having a, a day. very good day. Yeah, it's always a good day when you ain't got a real work. Yeah, this is real this work. is fun real, work. Real work day suck. Yeah, this is fun work. Yeah, no doubt. Fun work. Good fun work. Yeah. You got anything you want to mention or anything you want to say before we get going on this episode, bud? I always give a shout out to my boys from uh, from the UK come over, the uh, band Air Force. If you've never heard of them, check them out. Yeah. They're uh, really cool guys, and they uh, flew over from England to do a three-day uh, tour in Florida, and I went down to hang out with them and uh, did the tour, and man, yeah. it was a blast. You got to spend some time with them, too, didn't I you? I did, man. It was a blast. Yeah. Big, big fun. Good stuff. Went to a couple places. Uh, I forget the first place. It was Metalworks, I think was the name of it. New yeah. place. And then uh, went to the OCC Roadhouse in uh, uh, St. Pete. And that's a pretty damn cool place. You need to go check it out for you in there or down there local. And then the last place was uh, a place called uh, the Brass Mug. And there's several crack house stickers right there. If you uh, find, hey. find one, take a picture, I'll send you a shirt. Hey, sounds good. <laughs> so cool stuff, man. Yeah, yeah, we had a great time. Good. I'm glad you got to do that. And Good, good, time for, good for the soul, man. See old friends and hang out with them. You know? Heck yeah. That's right. Especially from out far away, you don't get to see them very often. Yep. And uh, we want to remind everybody, if they want to go over our store page and get you something cool to wear, get you something, a t-shirt, mug, something. Yeah, get you a brand new t-shirt, you know, it's getting springy around. Yeah. yeah. Help out the crack house and keep the lights on, keep the lights running. And make yourself look good. Yeah. Help support us. Yeah. We appreciate and that. If also, if you just want to go over to Apple Podcast and leave a rate and review, Please do, and That's right. tell all your friends about us. If you don't, just uh, grab their phone and do it for them. Yeah. <laughs> just recommend us. That seems to work. That's exactly right. Yeah. Make sure you put something in the box, of course, so it lets us know. Hey, we also got that gas button on the website. We do. If you want to like to give us some gas, you can either leave us some money or send a can of beans. Yeah. <laughs> That'll give us some gas, too, in some way or another. Yeah, take it either way. Yeah. Either way, we appreciate it. We really do. Other than that, dude, if ain't nothing else, we're going to get started. I think uh, let's roll. Yeah, because this is a pretty neat episode we're doing today. It's something yeah. that's old but also current. Yeah. It's been in the news lately. It has. So we're going to gonna give us a shot and see where it takes us. Well, let's go. But we're actually going back to 1957. Man, I need a, like a time machine yeah. sound. Yeah, especially if you go back to 1957. Yeah, there's some cool cars. Yeah, but we're going to... Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah, this is uh, back in February of 1957. And this is when uh, the body of a naked boy was found beaten in a box. Yeah. He was beat to death. Yeah, I don't think he was beaten in a box, but... Well, he was found beaten, but he was in a box. Yes. But as of July 2021, he had never been identified. No. He was just referred to as the boy in the box. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. But uh, his uh, body was discovered in a park 
in the fox chase section of the city of Philadelphia by a muskrat hunter. Yeah, and uh, his name was John Stachakowick. Yeah, a boy. Yeah, I'm pr- pretty sure I butchered that name, but that's how you, that's his name. And, but he was, uh, he set out some muskrat traps. Yeah, I don't think, he, if he was muskrat trapping in 1957, I don't think he's going to mind today. I guess, you know, you just didn't have much to do back then, so you just, hey, I'm going to go set out some muskrat traps. I reckon. Yeah. But as he was going through the brush looking for his traps, he came across a box. It was just there on the ground. Mm-hmm. And when he looked inside, he saw the body of a child. Yeah. But he didn't report his findings to anybody or the authorities because he didn't want to get in trouble for setting some traps. Yeah, had illegal muskrat trapping. Yeah. So I just wonder how much trouble you can get in for illegal muskrat trapping. I don't know. Probably a lot more if I want to ask you where, how you knew that box was there. But he just left the box and moved on. Yeah. And it was a few days after this muskrat hunter left, there was a guy on February the 25th. His, he was a 26-year-old guy, and his name was Frederick J. Benosis. And he was driving along Susquehanna Road. And this when he said he saw a rabbit run out in front of him and sort of dart over into the brush on the side of the road. Yeah. So he pulled over to go chase the rabbit. Yeah, his uh, his story was originally that he was there because he knew some animal traps were in the area. So he pulled over and went into this wooded area to chase this rabbit. Mm-hmm. That's what he was reporting. And he came across this body of this boy in the box. Okay, so they're on fox chase section, and he's rabbit chasing, and he runs across some muskrat boxes and then finds the body. Yeah, there's a lot of animals involved here. Yeah, that story's a little far-fetched. Yeah, but now Frederick, he didn't report his findings to the police that time. He eventually came out saying that he was spying on some students. Right. Yeah. That sounds more like it. Yeah, he was over there being a peeping Tom yeah. at a, some girls enrolled at the Sisters of Good Shepherd School. Now, this was a home for wayward girls. So he was peeping Tom on some girls. Yes, that's what he was doing. That's why he didn't want to. Yeah, that yeah, that makes a lot more sense yeah. instead of... I was chasing a rabbit. If yeah. you ever chased ever a rabbit right in front of you, you, you would never get anywhere around here. You'd be in the woods all the time. Yeah, who's going to buy that? <laughs> I, I saw it and I just thought I'd chase it. What the hell is you going to do with it? You yeah. sure ain't going to catch it. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> but what happened was he saw a news report the next day is about a four-year-old girl that was missing. And this one he thought he'd better call the police. Now, the child in the box ended up being a male. And the missing girl was found a week later. And had, she had died from starvation in an abandoned house. But this Frederick guy that was chasing the rabbit, supposedly... Finally, he finally reported the body to the police, and they began to investigate. Mm-hmm. And the area where this unidentified child was found was located in the 700 block of Susquehanna Road near Veer Road in the Pennypack Park. It was just northeast of Philadelphia. Yeah, I think the road that he found it on, it was like a road that connected two other roads. Yeah. And that's where they had the traps and stuff, which that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Like in a wooded area between the roads. Hmm. And the body was found in a box that had once contained a bassinet that had been sold by J.C. Penney. And the size of the box was 15 inches by 19 inches by 35 inches in size. And it featured the words, furniture, 
fragile. Do not open with a knife. Hmm. Yeah. Probably good they didn't open it with a knife. Yeah. The boy was found wrapped in a plaid blanket. And there have been some reports say that the blanket was Native American in style and had been cut in half. Right. And the blanket was 64 inches by 74 inches and made some of some kind of inexpensive cotton flannel. And it had on the blanket, there was a faded design of, of like diamonds and blocks that were green, white, and brown and sort of reddish in color. Yeah, kind of a tribal pattern if you look at it. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. I get it. And it appeared to have been recently washed. An additional piece of it was found inside the box smeared with some kind of automotive grease. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was like a, a section of the blanket that was cut out and it was missing, which is very odd. Yeah. Yeah, I think we read somewhere that it said that they thought maybe that's where the tag or the manufacturer was listed and they just cut it off. Just trying to hide the evidence. But it was a pretty big piece now that we found more out about it, so yeah. I don't know if that's true or not. But the boy was described as being white and pale, and he was believed to be between the ages of three and six years old, meaning that he was probably born in 1952. Yeah, they didn't really know because he was so small and frail yeah like it mal malnourished there we, yeah there we go that's yeah. what i knew it was in there somewhere and he's go, go ahead because you know he's like between three he's like three foot or three foot four and he only weighed 30 pounds yeah and then he had a uh, blue eyes and then, hmm. uh, his hair was all matted up like it just been whacked off yeah it's weird like he had the the old baby doll haircut that your sister used to whack her all hair you know just chunk hair here and there yeah i was just wonder if they cut his hair to uh sort of Hide his identity, maybe. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. But he, had, you know, they'd cut his hair, but um, there was still clumps of the hair that was stuck to his body. Yeah, kind of to disguise his. Looks. Yeah, disguise him. That's what the word we're looking for. Yeah. And but his body was, like Dale said, was severely malnourished, and also he had some uh, surgical scars, most notably on his ankle and groin and chin. Yeah, and the hair was a light brown to a sandy blonde in color right so i don't know about those scars i don't, I don't know how you know they were surgical yeah i don't know hmm. but he was also covered in bruises which indicated he'd been abused before he had died yeah poor, poor dude yeah and his body was so wasted away that his ribs were showing through his skin and despite all this abuse there were no signs of any broken bones and it also discovered that uh He'd been circumcised yep. at some point. He was circumcised, but yet he had no vaccination scars at all. Like, yeah. Like the smallpox vaccination, that right. scar that would leave a little indention on your upper arm. Yeah, a little round circle. Yeah. yeah. But um, he had had seven scars, three of which indicated possible surgical procedures, and two of them were on his chest and growing and appeared to have healed pretty well, leaving just like a little hairline scar. Right. While the third one was on his left ankle and looked to have been uh, like a cut-down decision made to expose a vein so that a needle could be inserted to give a transfusion or maybe an infusion or something, which was very weird. Yeah. And the other scars included a half-inch one on the left side of his chest and a round, irregular-shaped scar on his left elbow, as well as a healed L-shaped scar on his chin. It was about a quarter inch long on the left side hmm so he had a pretty good pack of scars he did yeah 
I know a lot of these say surgical and stuff, but I wonder, knowing what we know, if they did them themselves. Could have been. Because as far as we know, he never left where he was. Yeah. We'll get into that one. Yeah. Now, his right palm and the soles of his feet were round and wrinkled, like a pruning, like you just... Um, been in the bathtub way yeah. too long. Well, you know, which indicated they'd been like submerged in water at the time he had died. Right. And also, his esophagus contained a dark brown residue which meant he had vomited prior to death. And the medical examiner also determined that he had likely died from blunt force trauma. And there were four round-shaped bruises on his forehead, and his face was blood-drained, hmm. which was pretty pretty bad, dude. Yeah. It's, it's sad. Yeah. The medical examiner conducted an X-ray image, and it showed that he had suffered from arrested growth, which is most likely due to the malnutrition and the abuse he experienced. Well, yeah, if you never eat, you're not going to grow much. No, you're not. Police also fingerprinted him and uh, cross-checked the fingerprints and hoped to find a match, but nothing ever came from that. No. And this led them to believe that he was possibly born at home or, you know, not in a hospital. Yes. And no records could be found on this little boy at all. And it is believed that he appeared to have possibly suffered from a chronic eye ailment or an infection before he had died, which had been treated with medication. And he also had numerous moles on his body, three on the left side of his face and one below his right ear, three on his right side of his chest, and a large one above his right wrist. Hmm. And despite all this abuse suffered by this little boy, someone had kept his fingernails and toenails trimmed, which was really odd. And if you're going to abuse somebody, you're going to go to the point of, trimming their nails and stuff and keeping them groomed yeah but if they've been soaking in the bathtub for who knows what maybe they was done then could have been might have been the first time we don't know yeah you know but this little boy also had a full set of baby teeth and is said to have been slightly buck tooth right and he had a shoe size of an 8d 8d what is 8d in a child's shoe size i don't know no i don't know i don't know if that's big or small i don't either but when i first read eight i'm like man he had some big feet for three and three foot tall but yeah, you're right. Probably but him being so small like shoe. that, you know, probably probably not a very big shoe. Probably not. I guess that's something we should have looked into. Yep. But now the weather on this day was cold and rainy, which made it hard to determine a confirmed, uh, you know, like a time of death and date and everything. Yeah. And in the end, the medical examiner estimated him to have died anywhere from a few days to a few weeks prior to being found. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I guess the cold weather sort of helped preserve him a little bit more. Yeah. And it is thought that he was likely to have been just a few days as the box was dry and it had been raining you know weeks before yeah well it didn't look like a brand new box it didn't look bad yeah and we're going to talk about this box a little bit more yeah but the philadelphia inquirer this is the newspaper there in the uh, pennsylvania they printed over four hundred thousand flyers with the boy's image on it and they were distributed across the area and the flyer was also included with every gas bill right so i guess everybody would if you, had a, if you was using gas, you got a copy. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess everybody needs gas up there. Right. And 270 police academy recruits combed through the crime scene, and they discovered a man's blue corduroy cap in, right near this where this box was found, mm. and also a child's scarf and a man's white handkerchief with the letter G in the corner. And some rabbits and some muskrat traps and, and some other stuff. Yeah. Lots of stuff in this location. But, you know, I, I, me and you were talking the other day about this. You know, I can walk out here in the woods behind my house and 
find something and walk a few more feet and find something else. Right. But, you know, I don't know if they're related or not. You're right. And I'm sure this uh, this flyer, man, you know, when it came out, I'm sure it really bothered a lot of people because they basically just took a picture of this fella. I mean, he's already dead, you know, front yeah. side and, you know, both profiles in the front picture. And that's what they used because that was the only photo they had. Yeah. And it's basically a flyer that said, police, police department, Philadelphia, PA, information wanted. Photographs depict unidentified boy whose nude body was found in a cardboard carton in a thicket. And then I can't read the rest of it, but near whatever road that was. But yeah, the photo is pretty creepy. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I guess if that's all you got, that's all you got. But man, both sides of his face and then a full frontal. Yeah. Yeah. Pitiful. You, you know, without sounding too mean, it almost looks like a zombie oh, cover or something. Yeah. Yeah, sad. But I guess if that's all you got. That's all you got. But now this cap they found was was pretty interesting to the authorities because it seemed to provide some possible leads. It was in really great condition and had a manufacturer's stamp on the lining, which read Robin's Bald Eagle Cap. This was at 2603 South 7th Street in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And they went and questioned the shop owner there. Her name was Hannah Robbins. And they learned that it had been customized for a man who bought it. And according to Mrs. Robbins, uh, he had been between the ages of 26 and 30 with blonde hair and no identical accent. Right. And after purchasing the cap uh, with cash, uh, she never saw him again. Yeah, pretty wild that they would remember that, though. But none of these clues ever provided anything in advance with the investigation. No, not at all. And they, yeah, I know there was a strand of long brown hair that was found at the scene, and this didn't belong to the little boy at all. Uh, and the customization on that hat was he had a, a leather strap with a buckle put on the back so it'd make it adjustable. Mm. Okay. And, you know, because none of them had that. I guess he really liked the hat, but maybe it was just a little bit too big for him, so he had them add that to it, which is pretty neat. Yeah, we actually have a picture of this hat we're going to provide, yes. too. Yeah. But the boys case was broadcast throughout the country via the police teletype which i guess was the mode of uh, communication back then yeah and people traveled from 10 states to pennsylvania in an attempt to help identify him and there was an article describing the boy's scars and injuries and was also published in a pediatric journal just in case any physician had treated this little boy with some similar injuries and police around the neighborhoods, and they checked every hospital, orphanage, and foster home in the area, but found every child was accounted for. So it's really crazy, dude. Mm-hmm. And th- but they got to looking in more into the box that this little boy was found in, and there was a serial number on it. Investigators traced back to the J.C. Penney Company, and this was the store they had there in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, and it was located at 69th Street and Chestnut Street. And it had been sold between December 5th, 1956, and February 16th of 1957. It's pretty amazing that they had those kind of records, I mean, especially without barcode information. Yeah, but this bassinet was sold for $7.50, which I guess back in the day was pretty expensive. Yep. And a search of records showed that only 12 were sold. And while people were able to track down eight of the purchases, the lead turned cold on it. And detectives also tried to track down information based on the blanket that the boy was wrapped in. And they discovered that it had been made in Swannanoa, North Carolina, or Granby, Quebec, Canada. But there were thousands 
had been produced and shipped all across the United States, and investigators were unable to pinpoint where it had been purchased. $7.50 would be $80.65 today. Wow. Big jump. Yep. But the the boy was eventually buried in a potter's field in Holmberg, Pennsylvania, next to Mechanicsville and Dunks Ferry Road, and his tombstone read, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy. Right. February 25th, 1957. Yeah, and if you don't know what a potter's field is, like a burial place for paupers or strangers or indigent people or just people who can't afford anything else or, you know, or don't have anybody, and that's basically where the city or state would bury you in what was called is a potter's field. Yeah, it's just a simple little grave. Yeah. Yep. At least you got one. Exactly. And after nothing came from the media's attention given to this case, the police went down the route of having a sketch of the child. You know, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, a three-year-old boy and nobody's... Nobody's, nobody's missing a kid. Right, nobody's missing one. But yeah. They, but they found one. Yeah. But they believe the boy had possibly been made to look female while alive. Hmm. I don't know what gave them this idea. Probably for the, the crazy haircut, maybe. Could have been. Yeah. And he, he could have possibly been had, well, could have had long hair. Yeah. And that's why he had that, that chopped up haircut. Yeah. Get rid of it. Yeah. But this, you know, his unprofessional haircut, which appeared to have been quickly performed, was the basis of this scenario, you know, possibly being made to look female. Mm. And he also had the appearance of, you know, his eyebrows had been styled, mm. which is very weird. Very. And get this, they also released a post-mortem image of this little boy dressed in a seated position. This was in hopes that it would sort of jog somebody's memory. This is about the creepiest damn thing ever. It's a very creepy photo. Yeah, they just, they've got him dressed and look like some jeans and dark shoes and just propped up. Yeah, look a little, like a maybe a white long sleeve shirt with a pullover vest or something. Yeah. Just sitting. Ugh. It's yeah. just real. Very, very creepy. We'll pass on the creepiness. You, know, so yeah. you can find it anywhere and we might as well. Yeah. There was a medical examiner employee. His name was Remington Bristow. He took this case pretty personally. Yeah. He published a fake story in a newspaper, and he indicated that the boy had died as a result of an accident and that his loved ones, they weren't able to afford a funeral. Right. And he hoped this was sort of coax someone into, you know, out of hiding, I guess, to come forward. Yeah. But it didn't, it it didn't work. It didn't work at all. And uh, he also put up $1,000 of his, of his own money as a reward for information in this case and traveled to a lot of states looking for some information. Yeah, and I did look that up. $1,000 of his own money today would be $10,646.62. That's a pretty good chunk. He was That's like, a pretty damn good chunk. He was invested, wasn't he? Yes. Because when you hear, well, he put up $1,000, it didn't sound like a lot, but check out the difference of what it is in today's money. It's a, it's a pretty good hunk. Yep. But there were some theories on this little boy in the box, and uh, the first theory was about a foster home that was located about a mile and a half from where he was found. And in 1960, uh, Remington Bristow, he contacted a psychic. And when he found the house that she had described to him, it was a foster home. Hmm. And then he also brought the psychic out to the crime scene, and then when, when she was there, she went straight back to that same house. Wow. So that's pretty creepy. It is creepy. But the foster home was run by Arthur and Catherine Nicoletti. And Catherine's daughter from a previous marriage was Anna Marie Nagel. Right. But Bristow went to an estate sale at a foster home and discovered a bassinet, which would have been similar to the one that the boy was found in. Yeah, it was after all this is over. Is that it actually at that same foster home? Yeah. Yeah. 
And he also discovered blankets hanging on the clothesline that were similar to the one that the boy's body had been wrapped in when they found him. Yep. Which was very odd, too. Yeah, a lot of fingers pointing. But Bristow's theory was that the boy belonged to the stepdaughter of the man who ran the foster home and that they disposed of his body so the stepdaughter wouldn't appear as, you know. Unwed. Yeah, Yeah. exposed as an unwed mother. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I read that theory all the way as well, you know, and they said, you know, maybe something happened and he'd die of an accident, but they couldn't report it because then she would be outed. Yeah. And it was unwed, and that was pretty serious back then. Yeah. But there was a lot of circumstantial evidence in this, and the police could not find any solid links between the boy and the box right, no, and nothing. this foster family. Nothing. Yeah. And uh, moving a little bit forward, in 1998, uh, Philadelphia Police Lieutenant Tom Augustin, who was in charge of the investigation and several members of the Vigadoc Society. This is a group of retired policemen and profilers. I'm pretty sure I've messed that name up. But uh, yeah, that's what they do. They interviewed the foster father and stepdaughter whom he had married. The foster home investigation was closed. Right. So they went back later and this, the foster father had married the stepdaughter. That is so weird. Yeah. Yeah. This whole damn thing's creepy. Yeah. And there was another theory uh, in February of 2002. There was a woman who came forward uh, with a story about this boy. Uh, she's just going by the letter M. I, guess. I think this one has really got some credibility to it. Yeah, I, I think yeah. it is. She got, they called her Martha or just the letter M for her name. But she claimed that her abusive mother had purchased this little boy whose name was Jonathan from his birth parents in the summer of 1954. And the boy was subject to extreme physical and sexual abuse for two and a half years. Yeah. And one evening at dinner, the boy had vomited up his meal of baked beans and was beaten severely for this. And his head was slammed against the floor until he was semi-conscious. Yeah, I read a, a thing about this, and this said basically that she had uh, M had said her mother had thrown her in a car and when she was younger and drove somewhere and went and picked up this kid. Hmm. So it wasn't just saying, you know, well, here he is. It said she watched her go to the door, hand the envelope to the whoever opened the door, and they gave her the bundle. And she could hear some man say, "Did you get the money?" They got the money. She came back in, got in the car, and handed her a child. Hmm. And then said, "You smelled pretty bad, like he'd need to be changed stuff, but it was still was a child." And then they went back to the house, and. uh she said that uh, the mother said that he couldn't stay upstairs. He had to live in the basement. Wow. Stay in like the, in a cardboard box down where the coal bin was. And it wasn't like a nice finished basement. It was just an old rock coal bin basement. Just a, a cellar type. It had two dog bowls for foods and then uh, had a drain in the floor for a bathroom. And he had to live there. He couldn't go upstairs. She said the girl was allowed to go, uh, you know, interact, but it had to, she had to be supervised. She could never go there by herself and he could never come upstairs. Yeah, and she cause was not to mention him to anyone. Hmm. Part about the beating said it was weird. Like when she would, her mom would go down there to uh, to feed him. She would stay like long times, and it was just kind of weird stuff. She always thought something was going on, you know, some some sexual stuff, some physical stuff. Didn't know, but he was always getting beaten stuff. And then uh, at this point here, that uh, she had actually was coming up. Said he only come upstairs to get his bath, and he was coming up to get a bath this time. And said the mother run the water really hot, whether she was thinking about it or not. And uh, put the kid in there, and the kid started screaming and flailing around. And did it wet her and made her mad. She jerked him out and slammed him on the ground. Or when he started flailing around, he flipped out. And that's when he threw up was in the yeah. water. And then she grabbed him out and flamed him on the ground and went to beat him and made the girl leave. And then uh, 
said that, uh, she hear the water splash as the mother threw him back into the thing saying, wake up, wake up. And then the next morning when the girl woke up, the little boy was still in the tub, but the wow. water had been drained. Hmm. That was what, that's her story for up to here. So it's pretty, pretty damn wild. But these details match the, uh, what the police had. Yeah. Especially the, the remains of baked beans in his stomach and, mm-hmm. and his fingers being pruny like. Right. Yes. Yeah, she said that the mother had asked her to, uh, to trim the nails while they were running the water so they could clean them up good. And she waved from her account was that uh, he, he had never, didn't ever have a haircut and had long hair hmm. at this point. Wow. That, that, yeah, that's pretty dang creepy right there. And I'm with you on this because it could be a link to this. Yeah, I think it is, man. It really is. And, and some of it, you know, before was kind of, but there's more has come out that we've learned about that kind of goes back to this theory yeah proving it more now whether it's every bit true or not or not but most of it seems to be it can be i won't say proven but there's information to back it up hmm, yeah. a lot of it yeah yeah so but yeah the m's mother she cut the boy's long hair mm-hmm. uh, you know this which uh sort of accounted for his unprofessional haircut right you know after that i guess she found him in the bathtub next morning and she cut the hair Go yeah ahead. i guess like we said to conceal his identity like right. we couldn't think of that word yeah <laughs> But M's mother forced M to assist her in dumping the boy's body in the Fox Chase area mm-hmm. and said that they were preparing to remove the boy's body from the trunk of the car as a passing male motorist pulled alongside to find out if they needed any help for anything. Well, I guess they see a flat tire or something. Yeah, because you see a car parked, I guess back then you sort of stop. Yeah, wasn't like today where you just pull up and they shoot you in the head. Yeah, but uh, Em was ordered to stand in front of the car's license plate to shield it from view while the mother convinced a, you know, this guy that stopped to mm-hmm. help him to till he drove off. Yep. Yep. But this story corroborated confidential testimony given by a male witness in 1957 who said that the boy had been placed in a box previously discarded at the scene. And in spite of this outward plausibility of Em's confession, police they were unable to verify her story right and neighbors who had access to m's house during the stated time period that we talked about denied that there had been a young boy living there and dismissed her, their claims as Being, just ridiculous yeah but that's because they never saw him yeah because when they go back to to this and i guess we're kind of jumping back and forth but i don't know it kind of makes makes everything make sense the girl said that when they brought him home it was dark right yeah so they went there and he never went outside so when and when this uh, happened, when he was killed or whatever happened to him in the bathroom there, they wrapped him up in a blanket and went back into the basement and took a, there was a side door out of the basement. They went into the driveway in the back yeah, and put him in the car there and drove. So nobody would ever know it. Mm-hmm. So still corroborated. But, uh, you know, also, I'm sorry, but uh, no, he said that when uh, they went to go take him wherever they took him, uh, that they were there and a guy did pull up and said that the guy was wanting to first they told him it was fine he was just checking to see if he had a flat tire or something he said no we're fine but they, neither one of them faced him they kept looking into the trunk so he never saw their faces because said that he, his report was it was a lady and then a, a, a teenage son but him being her size would could pass for a teenage son if you'd never seen could have yeah. if they were you know wearing hoodies or whatever they were wearing yeah so all this is still lining up and police, um, they said that M's story is plausible, but they're wary as a person um, had a like a mental illness, a history of mental illness anyway. Well, hell, wouldn't you? Yeah. And all this comes from, they said, you know, once they found out that she had went to her psychiatrist in, in the 80, 
late 80s and was the first person that she had ever told anything about this. Yeah. And then it wasn't until the 90s that when a lot of information come out, you know, so she wasn't faking it. What I'm saying is uh, the the website and stuff for for this kid, Boy in the Box, none of that got into the late 90s. So her her uh, story was way before any of that. So she definitely wasn't plagiarizing or getting it from already said information. Yeah. Now, the third theory, uh, there's an author. His name is David Stout. He's the author of The Boy in the Box, The Unsolved Case of America's Unknown Child. He theorized that this little boy's parents were likely poor, possibly carnival or migrant workers who would have been able to travel without, you know, like a paper trail. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and this theory is supported by the 1961 arrest of carnival workers Kenneth and Irene Dudley after their seven-year-old daughter was found dead in a wooded area in Virginia, wrapped in a blanket with signs of abuse and malnutrition. Mm. And several of their children have also gone missing, with many having passed away as a result of neglect and abuse, but none of them were found to have been identified identified as this boy. There's just a bunch of shitty people back in. Yeah, and uh, there's another theory. Some people theorized that this this Frederick Bonosis, he was the college student, you know, that was doing the peeping Tom. The peeping Tom. Yeah. He, um, who discovered the body, he reported to police. He was, um, it was involved in this little boy's murder. While he voluntarily took a lie detector and was cleared by investigators, uh, proponents of this theory, you know, say it's unreliable, you know, the polygraph test. Well, ain't none of it reliable. No, but. It's just somebody's theory. That I think he was just out there peeping Tom. Yeah, that's what I think, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's just other people thinking just because he's in the right place at the wrong time that he probably had something to do with it. But, yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah. People coming. But now some <laughs> but some recent updates on this. In 1998, the body of this little boy was exhumed to get some DNA from the enamel of his teeth. And the DNA was sent to the University of North Texas and was entered into both national and local databases. But no hits came from this at all. The boy in the box was reinterred in a grave marked America's Unknown Child in Ivy Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. Uh, the cemetery donated the plot while the son of the man who buried the little boy in 1957 donated the coffin. Isn't that cool? Yeah. His, his headstone and the money for the funeral. Yeah. So I guess he felt it was his, his duty. His dad done it, so he done it as well. well yeah, so Shows you some good people out there. Said that right. And residents continued to keep the grave decorated. You know, they bring animal, uh, like stuffed animals and flowers to keep yeah, it. And some toys and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, pretty dang cool. Yeah. Now, in 2016, uh, two riders, one from Los Angeles, California, his name was Jim Hoffman, and the other from New Jersey, his name was Louis Romano. They explained they believed they had discovered a potential identity from Memphis, Tennessee, and requestioned that DNA be compared between the family members and the child. The lead was originally discovered by a Philadelphia man who introduced Romano and Hoffman to each other and was developed and presented with the help of Hoffman and the Philadelphia Police Department and this Vidoc Society. This is that police society, yeah, in early 2013. And in December of 2013, Romano became aware of the lead and agreed to help the man from Philadelphia and Hoffman to obtain DNA from this particular family from Memphis, Tennessee, in January of 2014. And it was uh, quickly sent to the Philadelphia Police Department. 
and local authorities confirmed that they would investigate the lead, but they would uh, need more research to help the circumstances surrounding the link before comparing the DNA. And in December 2017, Homicide Sergeant Bob Kohlmeyer, I hope I didn't butcher that name. It looks right. Yeah. He confirmed that DNA taken from the Memphis man was compared to the Fox Chase boy, and there was no connection. No connection. Mm Mm-mm. Roadblock after roadblock. I know. Now, in uh, March 21st of 2016, the National Center for Missing and Exploiting Children, they released a forensic facial reconstruction of the little boy and added his details to their database. Right. Good. Yep. And in August 2018, a genetic genealogist who helped identify the Golden State Killer announced that they would be using DNA profiling in order to try to identify the little boy through familial DNA. Yes. Now, it was about Christmas time of 2017, Dale. This is when uh, it was reported that stars sort of seemed to align with this case. Yeah. There was a guy by the name of Justin Thomas. He was doing some online shopping on Amazon, and he was looking for a a gift for his girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. And they found a really great deal in one of those Ancestry.com kits, so he ordered it for her. Yeah. She's picking the shit. Love this. Yeah. But... Unfortunately, their little relationship they had wouldn't last. And no, they, they, so he had an extra Christmas present. They broke up. Yeah. <laughs> but Justin Thomas, he didn't want this ancestry kit to go away, so he decided to use it for himself. Yes. And this would be an opportunity to, you know, to maybe find out about his family and stuff. Right, where they came from. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. And he discovered that he had many distant relatives that hailed from Italy and uh, over there in Europe. Yep. And the information was sort of neat to know, and he was able to fill in his family tree for a little bit. Yeah, I just done that, and just kind of didn't, you know, just kind of cool information. No yep. big deal. And there was a little bit later, he received a phone call from a forensic genealogist, and she was a cold case liaison who was asking for his help. Wow. And the woman on the other end of the line, her name was Misty Gillis, and she told him that uh, he was a match for a cold case but in order to help identify the victim, he would uh, need some more DNA. They would need some more DNA from his family. Right. So he went to his mother, and she agreed to, to do it. So he helped her get it done, and they sent it in. Yeah. yeah. Very, very cool. And so they were happy be, to help. Yeah, very happy, yeah. And this is when the Philadelphia Police Department announced that they had finally identified the boy in the box. Yep. And his name was Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Yep. And Thomas, uh, he remembered that he'd had a Zarelli family name in his family tree. Yeah, they were close. And from Italy. And as it turns out, his mother is likely uh, Zarelli's first cousin. Yeah, that's how close it is. Very, very close. Crazy. Yeah. You know, and this guy went on to say that, you know, it was kind of crazy when they first told him, you know, and he went to his mom and she said, sure, I'll help her do anything I can do. And they sent it in and it came back and it's like, wow, this is really close, almost first cousins. And he said, being, he knew about the case, but now, being an older guy with children of his own, it really hit home to this. And he said it just really tore him up about this little boy. You know, all these years and nobody knew what happened to him or who he was. And then kind of figuring it out. So it was really heart-touching. Mm-hmm. To be able to find that out. And, yeah. And, I mean, can you imagine if his uh, girlfriend, if they hadn't broke up and she had took that DNA test? and Never know. Still, still wouldn't know. Uh, it was just an accident. Yeah. The only way of knowing it, if she did hers and then talked him into doing one as yeah. well or something like that. But, I yeah. don't mind. You need to do yours. Yeah. Yeah. Would you do one? 
I've thought about it. Yeah, I'm like, eh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I thought about it, but then you, your information's out there. It's kind of cool if it would give it to you, but they get to keep it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be the only thing. Yeah, so. But, yeah, all this happened really quick. So at the December t- 2022 press conference, Philadelphia Police Commissioner stated that uh, Joseph's death is still an active homicide investigation, and they still need the public's help. Law enforcement reported at the same conference that both Joseph's biological parents are deceased, but he has some living half-siblings. Yes, on his mother's side and his father's side. Wow. And at the same December 2022 press conference, Philadelphia law enforcement stated that Joseph lived in the area of 61st and Market Street. And they also quoted as saying, I don't know what the neighbors knew or didn't know, said the police uh, homicide unit. There was a Captain Jason Smith at the conference, and he also added that the child did live past the age of four years old. So there would have been somebody out there that would have seen this kid, perhaps another family member that hasn't stepped forward, possibly a neighbor that remembers seeing the little boy and remembers whatever occurring at the household. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that depends on when these other people took him and hit him in their house, you know? Yeah. How many, I'm not sure how how long he was in their possession. Yeah, he could have been sold immediately or given away. Right. Yeah. For a couple of years, yeah. Hmm. But in January of 2023, NBC 10 Philadelphia reported that uh, Joseph Zarelli was born to a couple that lived at 64th and Callaway Street. But the channel also stated it was unclear if he lived there long enough for people to even notice him. Right, right, right. Yeah, like we what mentioned. Said, yeah. Now, in just this year, Philadelphia Inquirer reported that Joseph Zarelli's biological parents were Augustus J. Zarelli, known as Gus, and Mary Elizabeth, uh, her maiden name was Abel Plunkett, also known as Betsy, that she went by. So if uh, this Augustus, his biological father, was known as Gus, you know, they found that handkerchief with the letter G on it Yeah, out there when they found his body in right. the box. Yeah, and all this kind of goes back to M's account of what happened. This all follows every bit of this. Yeah. So I think that's really true. And there's a lot more to it. I mean, this where we saw where uh, another guy had went through and broke down the family and run cross-checked this M and who her parents were and who this could be and everything seems just keeps falling in line. So, he, but but the police and they know all this stuff and he the, even the guy in the interview said that uh, the police have his actual birth certificate now and so they know all this stuff, but they're definitely not going to go. Well, we think that uh, the mother did it or the the step whatever the lady was. Who uh, had bought him? We don't think uh, she. Um, we're not saying that she did. Em's mama. Em's mama. Yeah, her, I can't remember her name. But anyway, they don't, they're not saying coming out saying okay she did it. Case closed. In case it was another something else that would come along later and we let them go free. You know, so it's still that's why it's still open. Yeah. But a lot has been found out in the last year. Yeah, through DNA. Yeah. So it's pretty wild. Pretty wild story for somebody to go unnamed for almost seventy years, and then. Uh, just by chance, somebody took a DNA test and they figured out who he is. That's just great, man. It is. Yeah. His uh, murderer hasn't been caught, but hopefully they can figure out something. Right. But they have made uh, leaps and strides to to get this uh, figured out and who his parents were and who he is anyway. He's not un- unidentified anymore. They're correct. They know who he is, and they also know that most of those other people are deceased now, like the, the people who sold him and the people who bought him, and you know, and they're deceased and don't have... Uh, 
any children at all, I think. Anybody with Sephiroth's half-siblings, and they haven't released information to put them out there, and none of them have come forward, but that's probably just because they don't want all the attention, I figure. Yeah. Either that or they don't want to see, realize, think that uh, their parents would have sold one of their kids. But the large headstone that that was first installed with the words, America's Unknown Child, was later changed to Heavenly Father, Bless This Unknown Boy. Yep. And on January 13th, 2023, just this year, which would have been Joseph's 70th birthday, a new, a new memorial containing his full name and image was unveiled along with the addition of his name to the existing headstone. Pretty cool little grave site, yeah. And we got pictures of that we'll post, too. Pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Crazy story, man. Yep. But that is the uh, story of the boy in the box, Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Yep. Now he's got a name. Yeah. They just find out who killed him. Yep. All right, Dale. We're going to get out of here, bud. All right, let's roll. We want everyone to be safe. Please be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is the, the Crack, Crack House, House Chronicles. Chronicles.